So next month I'll be joining another pilgrimage from Christ Church to Israel, Palestine, otherwise known as the Holy Land. As you've heard me say on many other occasions, I strongly encourage you to make this pilgrimage a priority at some point in your adult years, if at all possible. Think of it not as an interesting travel option or vacation, but as an important component of serious Christian spiritual commitment. I know it involves serious time and money, but then, as is so often the case, that's how it goes with things that matter a lot. They require something of us. There is no equivalent experience to stepping into the physical geography where Jesus and the disciples worked out the days of their lives. In a few weeks, our travel will take us into the Galilee region in the north where much of the gospel story unfolded. Here's where Jesus found his fishermen disciples, Peter, James, and John, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Earlier, you heard, as Brian was reading, this referred to as the Sea of Tiberias, so named for the city of Tiberias, founded by the Jewish king Herod as tribute to the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. You might remember back just a couple of weeks ago when we were reading the whole story of Jesus' last days that the Roman governor Pontius Pilate had grave anxiety over his Jesus problem and he sent Jesus to this king Herod who wound up returning him right back to Pilate like a political hot potato. This Tiberius is where Jesus would have been sent. I well remember during one of our former trips taking a boat out early morning onto mist-shrouded water. This was on the Sea of Galilee. Once positioned a good distance from shore, the captain cut the engines and we were able to sit silently for a very long while contemplating the many events that comprise much of the gospel accounts of the life and times of Jesus and his friend, so many of whom fished that very sea. Afterwards, we visited several of the traditional locations associated with some of the well-known stories within the Galilee region, like the Sermon on the Mount and the Feeding of the 5,000, and also the site associated with the story Brian just read. The traditional site of the wonderfully evocative tale of the disciples' encounter with a resurrected Jesus at the break of day, sharing a bit of breakfast over a campfire. Standing in a circle there just at the water's edge, our little Christ Church band shared communion. And you know, whatever else you might hear from those who go on these trips, the fact that we organize them as a small intentional band of friends accounts for much of the richness of the experience. One could do this alone, of course, and learn a great deal of history and get some good photos. But an old African proverb says, 
If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I've always thought this could serve as a theme undergirding life at Christ Church. Simple, basic, obvious, I suppose. And then again, oddly elusive for many people as they engage the bright lights, big city context here in New York for the living of their days. I've often heard people report over my many years here how much they yearn for authentic community, for authentic relationships in their lives, and how spiritually and personally important that is for them. And when they say this to me, I mostly believe them, that that is what they say they want. But then I have observed how the organization of their lives mitigates their ever finding the very thing they say they crave. And the busier they get, the harder it becomes to maintain any disciplines around the things they say really count most of all. You know this from your own experience. Whether we're talking friendship or marriage or family or any purposeful endeavor involving or impacting others and the common good, going far together requires a series of choices and the development of habits that support those choices which often run counter to running a fast race to some seemingly compelling end. How is a life of deep purpose and meaning fashioned anyway? This seems an especially poignant matter for the talented, dynamic, energetic, motivated, goal-oriented, adventurous types who make their way to this city. When I first arrived here almost 30 years ago now, wow, an older member, well, at least older than I was by a decade or two, referred to New York as a city of finishers. And by that, he meant hard strivers overcoming many obstacles to advance on their dreams. They were smart and driven and competitive and creative. The city attracted that energy, Steve, he said, by way of warning or explanation of what I would find here. That seemed a compelling idea, one that even massaged my own ego. After all, I was now among the, that inspired group at the age of 34. But then what about, what about the habits of the heart and the habits of the mind and soul concerning the things that mattered most of all? What about those things? It seemed a wide open field, really. A city filled with a glut of individual aspiration for a thousand ends. But what a rich, dynamic human community for all of the achievers. What about that? What of the going far together rather than the going fast alone? And you know, over the decades, it has become increasingly clear to me that the gospel message has never been more relevant. Certainly, the disciples following Jesus had little real understanding of what lay ahead for them as they made their way from Galilee to Jerusalem in those days. The charismatic Jesus was leading them on some great adventure to a very bright future. 
And as they traveled along, our sacred stories tell us they bickered among themselves as to who was the greatest among them, who would have the choice place next to Jesus when he came into his own typical human preoccupations about individuals striving for the golden ring. It all came to pieces at the end once they entered Jerusalem, their own version of the city of finishers. Well, it it sure seemed to finish off their dreams once Jesus hung from a cross at the very bitter conclusion of their journey. The erstwhile group leader, Peter, even denied he even met had ever met the man. Three times he lies about it. Not that we could really blame him, I suppose. He was completely unprepared for the crushing climax to his great adventure. But then the startling, unbelievable reversal, something called resurrection, something utterly unexpected, difficult to make sense of, yes, literally beyond belief and yet profoundly, mysteriously real, and then several looming questions. What did this mean? Where should they go? What should they do? And as a kind of epilogue to the incredible story, John tells us the disciples made their way back to Galilee, up in the north, no doubt physically and emotionally spent, alert but confused. So they went home together, a band of friends having journeyed on an astonishing pilgrimage. As John tells the story, we could imagine a poignant silence holds sway when all of a sudden Peter blurts out, I'm going fishing. Fishing. He fell back to what he had always done. He went back to the work he knew best, not really knowing what else to do. And so they all go fishing. And in that common activity early in the morning, Jesus joins them for breakfast on the shore of the sea. It's a really beautiful image. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's, you know, it's so small scale, it's so intimate. They come to the shore, and there's Jesus around a campfire making breakfast for his friends. How does resurrection manifest? You know, is it noisy with singing and trumpets and a big falderall? within a group of friends sharing a meal on the seashore. And in that setting, they learn what comes next. First, forgiveness and reconciliation. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times Peter says yes, and the spell of the betrayal is broken. 
friendship is restored and from this reconciliation a mission is forged in the manner of Jesus' love who then says to them, follow me. And I think he means follow me in the way of love. And I want to point out here, he did not say, okay, it's time to subscribe to a set of propositions about me. Or it's time to write a creed. No, he said, follow me. And by the way, that's infinitely more challenging. Following is infinitely more challenging, which is why we retreat to propositions. And this following inevitably leads to an investment in the habits of the heart and of the mind and of the soul that reflect the same love Jesus lived. A radical love that broke down barriers among people, a love that excluded no one, pregnant with forgiveness and reconciliation for any and all everywhere. Every time I say that, It's breathtaking. Every single time. Experience reveals we cannot live this love in isolation. Any substantial, meaningful definition of love involves others as both subjects and objects. Love can only find its full consummation in going far together period. That's what we see in Jesus joining his friends for breakfast. Do you understand how that means that any moment around your dinner table in your home there's an opportunity to recall this story and recognize that forgiveness and reconciliation and love are available in that precise moment precisely because Jesus lived. Do you see how radical this is? It transforms your very apartment. Into a holy place. So we might say that Christ Church is a boot camp for learning about these things, for learning how to embody this very same love. Our church vitality reflects the strength of the intentions of those who choose to throw in together and the vigor within the habits of heart, mind, and soul that we all bring together here in our commitment to worshiping together, learning together, struggling to grow up together working together, giving of ourselves and our material resources together. In short, taking the long spiritual pilgrimage together. Because we know it's the only way to really go far.